Good to see everybody. Um, tonight's message actually changed yesterday. Uh, probably doesn't surprise you in the midst of everything that's going on. I was going to preach as where both of our communities are in the Gospel of Luke. I was going to speak on the Gospel of Luke, but uh, the Lord was very clear not to do that. And so I said, okay, Lord, what do you want me to speak on? And God said, you know, I feel like the pastor of Radiant doesn't get enough respect. I think you should preach on the book that's named after him. I kid, that's not what the Lord said to me. That's what Joel said to me, but that's not what the Lord said to me. No, the Lord did lead me to the book of Joel, which is not uh, one of the more widely read, which is probably why you get no respect. Um, And if you're not familiar with Joel, Joel is one of the 12 short little books at the end of the Old Testament, part of the 12 minor prophets, so-called not because of their lesser importance, compared to, the, say, the major prophets like Isaiah, but rather they're framed as the minor prophets because of how short, how brief their messages are compared to the words given by, say, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Daniel. Now, it, it, very quickly, we struggle a lot to determine where Joel's message falls within the pecking order of the other 12. Our best estimate, if you're counting, is that his message comes early on and probably is the second of the 12 messages given to the divided nation of Israel by these minor prophets. But the truth is, the larger historical context is not all that important to hearing Joel's message. And without any further ado, let me read to you a little bit from chapter 2 so you can get a little bit of the flavor or uniqueness of this brief word that the Lord gives to Joel. From Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large, mighty army comes, such as was never seen in ancient times, nor will be ever seen in ages to come. And then going to verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may relent. He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the immediate event that spurs this really dark, disturbing message, and again, from what I read, you now know why most people don't read the book of Joel, by the way, but the immediate event that spurs this prophecy is actually a plague of locusts of unusual size. If you Princess Bride fans, I didn't say rodents of unusual size. I said locusts of unusual size. Okay, work with me, guys. It's going to be a long night otherwise, all right? (laughs) Here's the scene. One day, the fields are lush as the buds are seen to peak at just the right time. The people are excitedly getting ready, as you might imagine, as a good harvest looks probable. 
fair winds are blowing, all appears to be well, until suddenly those same winds change and bring uncontrollable clouds of insects that devour, that devour all that once looked so promising, all that lies in their wake. And just like that, everything changes. Fathers hide the remaining wheat from their wives and children because they need seed for the planting. The daily bread becomes not so daily. The rich and the privileged manage to bail themselves out for the moment while the poor are left to glean after the insects. And this picture, while it may seem far removed for for us in one sense, this picture of an economic and communal crisis in many ways to me sounds all too contemporary as we continue to try and breathe again from a global pandemic. A pandemic that's taken the lives of many and upended the lives of everyone else. It's a picture that seems very, very familiar as we continue to walk through these days of ongoing supply shortages and inflation, where goods and resources continue to be scarce even as their costs keep rising. It's a biblical picture in another way that looks all too familiar as we already started to pray tonight, as we watch, as we witness on all our channels, all our screens, the pestilence, not of locusts, but the pestilence of war from Russia invading and laying siege upon the brave people of Ukraine, leaving devastation, grief, and refugees in its wake. Fittingly, fittingly, I think it's against this backdrop that we once again today start what is known, what is observed, as Pastor Joel told us, the season of Lent. Observed for centuries across many different cultures, as well as very various expressions of the church's faith, worship, and witness, the next six weeks are sacred time. The next six weeks are set apart for our annual reminder of just how far our God was willing to go for us in order to be with us forever. Lent is an invitation for all Christians to do more than possibly remember passively remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Lent is an opportunity to recognize we only receive what the Lord offers to us to the extent that we are actively willing to follow him. The journey of Lent invites us and initiates with the first step of what is today, Ash Wednesday. And as once again we set our eyes on following Jesus, Ash Wednesday reorients our perspective so that we remember why we must go, why we need to go where Jesus goes. Because today is about confronting our finitude, the impermanence of our humanity. Ash Wednesday assaults our dangerous forgetfulness of the limits of our days, of our strengths, of our grasp, the limit of our control over the lives we live Churches are not often full on Ash Wednesday because on Lent's first day, Ash Wednesday doesn't give us the ability to turn a blind eye to the mortality that we all face. As the mark of death glares at us by way of a gritty smear of ashes branded on nearly everyone else's faces. And the solemn words that accompany the inscribing of these temporary spiritual tattoos, from dust you have come and to dust you shall return, they further give jarring jarring reminder to the inevitability of our final day on this earth. Something that we don't like to hear, that we are each going to die. But the point of tonight is not to stock up on insect repellent. It's not an epidemic of unusual locusts we have to fear as the cause of our demise. 
what Joel describes is most likely a literal happening, but it's also a powerful metaphor of the real source of our destruction, the plague, the pestilence of sin in our lives. Sin, the desecration of ourselves, the desecration of others, the desecration of creation itself. Sin, our clueless and yet willful defaming of all that is good, beautiful, and holy. Sin, humanity's spurring of its divinely entrusted vocation. Sin, our mutual narcissism and self-centeredness from which we dare to assert, I am my own authority. Sin, our repeated affront to the one who has created, blessed, entrusted, called and moved among us with fearsome, self-giving love. Sin, our continued rejection and rebellion against our Creator, even as we blame or berate God for the messes we make, for the chaos we unleash, and for the suffering and losses that result. Sin is our shared problem. Sin is our one true global pandemic. Sin is the universal cause of death. And Ash Wednesday challenges us to confront our sin, to confess what God creates and blesses is beset by evil, by violence, by suffering, by death. That it's not the way it's supposed to be. Not because of you. Not because of me. Not because of them. But because of our brokenness because of our sin, because of us. And to be clear, sin is not merely an individual problem. It's not a private matter. And we've got a bad track record in the church of making that the case. That sin somehow is just a personal thing. It's a private matter, and that's not true. But at the same time, we also have a growing problem within the church where we go to the other extreme and insist that sin is merely a systemic, institutional issue. The problem... The plague of sin is a both and, not an either or. Make no mistake, there are indeed principalities and powers. There are. There are spiritual forces opposed to God at work in this world that keep us together in a narcissistic loop of shame and release. But nevertheless, we each remain responsible for the choices we make, real choices that have real consequences that add to the anarchy of a world divorced from God. I'm really thankful and appreciative that you're here tonight because again, Ash Wednesday is not among the favorites because Ash Wednesday, if I've painted it enough of a picture, Ash Wednesday is one of the rare days where there's no way of getting around it because the very nature of why we're here, Ash Wednesday demands that sin be taken seriously. Ash Wednesday aims to renew our capacity to blush Pride, greed, sloth, wrath, lust, gluttony, envy, nip and bite, both of us personally and collectively. Obvious faults, hidden faults, refusals of trust, refusals to act, idolatry, racism, sexism, slander, lies, denial, betrayal, Violence, murder, these are nasty bugs indeed. 
And they're the kind that have a tendency to breed and fester in our lives and our communities, just like the locusts that are the backdrop for Joel's message. Just like those locusts, sin, sins like these gain strength in numbers and can grow to unusual sizes. And just like the tragedy underscoring Joel's invitation and challenge to the people, sins like these often leave devastation and destruction in their aftermath societally, nationally, institutionally, governmentally, and dare I say it, even within the church. No matter how deep and wide sin penetrates into our lives, its final destination remains the same. Stone-cold reality of one single, final, and absolute death. A day like today, like Ash Wednesday, is all the more important, I think, in a culture that desperately seeks to deny the reality of death. We work hard. We work hard to trivialize or sanitize death on television, in movies, through video games, so it doesn't seem so bad. Part of the shock that we're all still feeling after these last two years, part of the shock that we're beginning to experience again as we see war, is death is staring us in the face. And we prefer to keep it buried. We prefer to look away. We work hard to, to trivialize or sanitize death. Technology has improved our ability to manage death. Not stop it from eventually happening, but at least removing it from our immediate line of sight. Not too long ago, as some of you in this room may know, most dying and most funerals happened at home. But now, they're all but sequestered to hospitals and nursing facilities out of the view of daily life. And these are just but a few of a thousand strategies. We could talk about so many other strategies that we have, with dealing, we have for dealing with our fear of death, all which really boil down to two attitudes when it comes to death, denial or panic. And living in denial of death is typically a youthful response. I won't, I won't card anybody or ask your age, but do you remember when you were young, if you don't feel like you're on the young side? Do you remember when you were young? When we're young, we live recklessly, believing, yeah, death will come for the old, for the weak, for the sick, but not for us. And that's why if you're not on the young side, it's a really hard move, right? Because you remember what you said when you were young and you go, uh-oh, death's coming for me. It's time. But when you're young, death is, death is not in your mind. And that kind of recklessness of youth, right? Adventurousness causes us in our youth to plunge out of airplanes or maybe even into strange beds shunning any measure of caution. But eventually, as I alluded to, most death deniers are brought face-to-face -face into encounters with the future they fear, the death of a friend or a loved one, a bad diagnosis, an accident, even a close call. As the cultural myth goes, this brings us down to earth, and we live in a more solemn acknowledgement of life's realities well, for at least a few more days or weeks. But denial is a powerful thing, and we allow ourselves to forget that our days are numbered. We allow ourselves to forget that tomorrow is never guaranteed. The denial of death works for a long time until eventually, again, our age catches up with us. And when our age catches up with us, then we adopt the next attitude for avoiding the reality of death, panic. We exercise more. We drink less. 
We cut out the carbs and the fried foods and switch to soy in our lattes and olive oil in our kitchens. If you stop and think about it, many of our obsessive tendencies over workouts, weight loss and food, organic, low carb, high carb, whatever, all these things are rooted primarily in a fear of death that drives us obsessively to fixate and regularly try to guardrail our lives. We think if we can just get the living recipe right, find the right health prescription, perhaps we can stave death off. But we're here tonight because Ash Wednesday serves to interrupt both our denial and our panic. Ash Wednesday is a sober and stark reminder that death is the biggest mess right in front of our eyes all the time. Ash Wednesday once again proclaims what we don't want to hear, that our rooms, that our closets need to be cleaned, that death is the kind of mess we can ignore. It's not going to go away. And the ashes are a symbol in many ways of just how burned up, just how burned out we are. We are living on fumes. We're all in the midst of a slow fade. We've all fallen and we can't get up. Ash Wednesday makes us confront the truth about sin and all the death it brings. And it's a pretty bleak picture because this is a, this grand mess, everything I've laid out. I mean, I don't know how you can see it any other way. This grand mess is one we can't clean up on our own. And that's the other problem, right? We don't like messes we can't clean, clean up on our own. That's why we stick them in our closets. That's why we put them under our beds. Out of sight, out of mind, as we like to say. It doesn't sit well with us that this death thing hangs over our head that we can't control because after all, we're, pretty, we're basically good people, aren't we? I look around, I see basically good people. We try to live decent, honorable lives, don't we? I mean, look at all of us here in church on a Wednesday night, for heaven's sake. Some of us even delayed dinner to be here. We came straight from work or school. Doesn't that in and of itself speak loudly and clearly of our faith, of our values. And that's, when, that's the moment when words like those become like ashes in our mouths. Because if you were kind of getting excited, oh, this was the good part of the sermon, we've got to step back in everything that we just said. Because what does it mean to be a basically good person? What does that mean? What does it mean to be a basically good person? Who defines that baseline? You? Me? Us? Where does being even the slightest bit bad, the slightest bit rebellious, deceitful, where does that become problematic? Where does that become dangerous? Where does that become hazardous to your health? You see, even the smallest cancer in our bodies will multiply. We'll seek to overtake and shut down the rest of our organs. That's what cancer does. And beloved, that's what sin does too. The moment we begin to suspect we're pretty good folks, that's the moment when we're in real danger of slipping away from God entirely. A well-known pastor once wrote, the greatest threat to Christianity is not evil, but good. 
The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes were all very good people. And very good people often have no need for Jesus. When we're convinced we're good, there begins to grow in some dark, unexplored corner of our hearts the conviction that we're quite well, that we don't really need a doctor, that we don't really need God so much after all. But understand, this whole thing, everything we're about today at a bare minimum is meaningless if we don't understand, if we don't accept that we are sick, that we need help, we need an intervention, care greater than we can give ourselves. And the prophet Joel points his people, points us toward the great physician. He begs us to turn back to God, to get ourselves to the hospital for the promises of our father, the cure to what ails us remains on the table. Joel, I don't know if you caught this, quotes Moses. Moses, by the way, he quotes Moses after the golden calf episode. Perhaps one of history's greatest outbreaks, by the way, of sin and death. He quotes Moses when he says, Return with all your heart, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return, for the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. My brothers and sisters in Christ, Joel is assuring us that this is heartbreak warfare. Our Father, our God's heart breaks over the war of sin and death that rages against us. Again and again, our God beckons us to relent and return home to him. But prophet after prophet like Joel echoes that continued lament of our Father to rend our garments, not our garments, but to rend our hearts and we still aren't hearing that message. We change our clothes. We're good at that. Some of us. We change our clothes. At a bare minimum, we put on our best on Sunday. But then all the days in between, we keep wearing the unclean, filthy, disease rags that are choking the life out of us. Today is a powerful wake-up call to a dying world and a sleeping church that faith is more than just huddling in the dark, reading scripture, singing laments, saying our prayers, and waiting for the end of the world. Listen carefully to Joel's final words that we heard tonight. Where does God relent? Where are hearts rent, broken, and reformed? Listen to what Joel writes. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, elders, children, infants. The bridegroom meets the bride there. The bridegroom meets the bride in our darkest hour, at our final breath. The bridegroom, Jesus, meets us where we are not at our best, but when we find ourselves clinging to our last hope. The good news about Ash Wednesday. The good news about Ash Wednesday, this beginning of a journey we call Lent, this 40-day trek through the wilderness of our lives, is that in these next 40 days, we're not just going to remember that from dust we have come to dust we will return. We are not just going to remember that death stands before us, but the end of this 40-day journey, 
is a reminder that something, that someone rises from among the ashes we must embrace. In the shadow of our common dying, the mark of death that we bear tonight, as Pastor Joel said, is cruciform. Because today is the first step towards the fulfillment of a promise of a covenant that rings louder than the consuming silence of the grave. Today, we proclaim the name of the one who embraces all of our heartbreak, the one who goes to war against death. Today, we look to the one who will rise from the ashes of the sickness of our sin and become our cure, Jesus Christ. Thomas Merton once spoke of Ash Wednesday in this way. He wrote, the cross of ashes traced upon the forehead of each Christian is not only a reminder of death, but inevitably, tacitly, it is also a pledge of resurrection. The cross with which the ashes are traced upon us is a sign of Christ's victory over death. Beloved, don't misunderstand. And this is another reason why people stay away from Ash Wednesday, because Ash Wednesday services can sometimes be tilted the wrong way. We do not make this annual Lenten journey pretending not to know that it ends in Easter. We do not come together tonight to wrap ourselves in grimness or indulge in some perverse enjoyment of gloom and doom. Lent is no season for play-acting. Lent is a season for rekindling the call to discipleship, our response to the Great Commission. Lent is a spiritual practice, practicing more carefully, practicing more consistently what it means to follow Jesus every day of our lives. And what we're going to learn over these next 40 days is that we follow Jesus by traveling the narrow but honest path between life and death, between the reality of alienation and the work of reconciliation, between the naked truth of the brokenness of this world, of our brokenness within, and yet the rising dawn of a new creation, of a life without pain and suffering. We follow Jesus by walking by faith and not by fear. And we reflect Christ's presence as we act out of love and hope. Love and hope, not cynicism, not condemnation. Today, we receive the symbol of our death in the shape of our salvation, the sign of the cross. But in order to receive it, in order to receive Jesus, we have to let go of something else. The Lenten journey that is before us is a time to reflect on what we possess. More specifically, what are we clinging to other than Jesus Christ? And we are called to follow Jesus as he once again enters into that wilderness of our lives, not the facade, not the superficial impression we want others to see and believe, but Jesus will enter into the truth, the depth of our souls, to see what we have shaped our daily lives around. What are our habits? What are our practices? What are our possessions? What are our commitments? What are our conflicts? What are our relationships? What are we clinging to that isn't him, that isn't about him? What or who have we given ourselves over to? Is our discipleship grounded in life? 
Or is our discipleship grounded in preparing for death? Because Jesus is going to submit himself and allow his worth and sufficiency to be tested against the actual content of our lives. Is our worship what we devote our time, attention, and our resources to? Is our worship more instinctual than it is intentional? Jesus calls to us to be intentional, not instinctual. Is there anything we keep holding on to that in fact is holding us down? That in fact is holding us back from getting closer to Christ? You probably heard this on Ash Wednesday, but for centuries, Christians have adopted the practice of fasting during Lent. Maybe that's a practice you embrace. I've found that a lot of Christians, it's a practice they've gotten burned by. And they hate fasting, and they hate Ash Wednesday, and they hate this whole idea because they grew up in homes where their parents forced them to give up things they didn't want to give up because that's what you were supposed to do. I've heard all kinds of horror stories of fasting that people had to go through, and I've had all kinds of arguments as to why it's not biblical. <laughs> and yet the practice still remains, especially at Lent, of giving up something, of fasting. And at the core of this practice, just in case you don't understand it, is a recognition that in giving up something precious to us, we are better able to see as what we are better able to see what we hold most important. What you're called to fast is not something easy. What you're called to fast is something that's probably going to be hard. What you're called to fast is when I, you go back on those questions I ask and you go, you know what? If it's between Jesus and this, it might be a close call. Whatever might be a close call, you might want to try to let go of that for six weeks. And then you'll find out what kind of hold it has on you. And at the same time, you'll also find out what kind of hold it can't have on you, how Jesus' hold is greater. A lot of people, like I said, don't like the idea or practice of fasting, but I want to share with you the real secret about fasting. Fasting isn't so much about giving up as it is about giving in. Giving in. What are you willing to give in when it comes to Jesus? Are we willing to go all in with Christ? Ash Wednesday isn't required. This is a day that got made up in the church. You know that, I hope. It's not biblical. You won't find it anywhere. Some believers got together and thought this was a good thing to do. And because it was some believers and we like to fight in the church, other believers said, well, that's not in the Bible, so we're not going to do it. And here you are. Some people practice Ash Wednesday. Some people don't. Some people say, oh, you're one of those Christians. Oh, my gosh. Ash Wednesday isn't required. None of this is required. None of what we're about to do is required. Understand that. What we're we're going to invite you to right now, it's not a sacrament. It's not holy. You're not less of a Christian. You're not more of a Christian. You're not walking out of here. You shouldn't walk into Target or some other place and be like, hey, look at this. This is the real deal, man. Where's yours? It's not what this is about. Ash Wednesday isn't required. But Preparing for our encounter with death is a gospel priority. The invitation and challenge of Ash Wednesday is to yield, to die to oneself in order to live eternally in Jesus Christ. So whether or not you have an ash cross on your forehead is not the point. The sign, if you take it, and if you don't, it's fine, but the sign points to an inner reality of the willingness to say, I I'm going to meet my maker. And I'm not going to wait until I'm taking my last breath to meet my maker because my maker has met me already 
in Jesus Christ and I am going to die to whatever gets in the way of me being completely known and knowing him. It's a long road to travel, this business of dying, but it's a road we're already on whether we acknowledge it or not. The difference that Jesus makes is this. Do we wander in the wilderness alone only to inevitably and unavoidably perish due to our own limited resources? Or do we grab hold of our guide, the only traveler who knows the way through that wilderness, the only one who has the power to break through that dead end that awaits us on the border between this life and the next? And so I invite us, I challenge us, church, to look into the abyss, to look into the abyss and face what we most fear and to see the victorious Christ looking back at us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The resurrection and the life who has defeated death once and for all. The King of kings who makes all things, including us, new. Let us together bear on the fragility of our mortal coils what we most fear inscribed through the symbol of our faith, the promise, the assurance of our immortality. Let us today once again begin to follow the one alone who has the words, who is the way, who is the truth of everlasting life. Amen.